This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, June 23rd, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The For the People Act has been characterized as voting rights legislation, but there's a lot more to it than that. The Senate has effectively shut down the measure, at least for now, but the interventions into elections, the broad limitations on political speech, will certainly find a new life again down the road. Walter Olson discusses the other parts of the proposal. The For the People Act, so-called, includes all sorts of provisions that have nothing to do with voting. It's an omnibus, and uh, that term in this case means that it rolls together uh, dozens and dozens of previously separate bills that were supported by generally left of center, often good government, uh, procedure-oriented groups that believe that Washington listens too much to, uh, I don't know, people not like them or to special interests, depending on, on who you ask. So it's got lobbying stuff. It's got stuff about foreign influence. It's got attempts to rein in ethics, both for presidents and for the Supreme Court. Nothing to do with voting. It's got controls on issue advertising and controls extending to social media platforms, things that broadcasters currently have to do. So pages, dozens and dozens of pages go by with uh, issues unrelated to voting. And then there's also some voting stuff. All right. So in this giant piece of legislation, what well, what's the most promising thing? What stands out as, in Walter Olson's view, common sense reform with respect to voting where Congress has a clear mandate and power to act? The part of the bill that I sympathize with and would like to see refined and passed if it's refined in the right way, has to do with gerrymandering. And let's start with the Constitution on that, because the Constitution uh, gives Congress a great deal of say about uh, House elections. It says that the states have the first sort of the first row responsibility to set rules, but that Congress can then standardize and prescribe rules that apply to all the states, uh, so long as it's applying the same rule to everyone. So uh, you have a long history of Congress using this constitutional provision to control the ways in which states can have House elections. For, uh, for example, they used to, sometimes if you had four representatives from a state, they could elect them all at large, and everyone in the state voted for all four seats. Uh, Congress now specifies, no, you have to have single districts. And a bunch of other things that uh, states could do, their uh, their discretion has been limited by completely constitutional uh, legislation that is meant to regularize and, and make uniform. Congress has that constitutional power for U.S. House seats. And of course, the U.S. House is the most consequential area for gerrymandering. It also goes on in state legislatures, and we're going to leave that aside because even the For the People Act doesn't try to deal with that. But as far as House seats go, my problem is that they go about it in a um, uh, incredibly baroque and Rube Goldberg-like way, rather than uh, by tackling it directly and uh, forthrightly. Uh, let me first talk about what uh, the apparatus is that the For the People Act would create on gerrymandering. Uh, currently, uh, a small number of states have so-called independent citizen commissions. Uh, Arizona and California uh, pioneered this through voter initiatives, and now you've got them in Michigan and a couple of other states too. And there was some 
debate at the Supreme Court, in fact, five four decision as to whether states even could do this under separation of powers principles. But uh, they approved it, went ahead. It's still kind of experimental. Uh, each state that has done it has run into problems, but it's a moving target, and they'll probably come up with better formulas. So, what does the For the People Do Act, For the People Act, do? It comes in and says all fifty have to immediately adopt independent citizen commissions, and here's a, a long set of rules that you have to follow to have one. So. Uh, no more experimentation, no more uh, decentralized adaptation to the fact that California and Hawaii are two very different places with very different scales and everything else. And instead, you just have a prescription of uh, kind of a maximalist, you know, what uh, some good government uh, group thought was the best possible way of doing it. Now, that's what the bill uh, concentrates on now. What could it be doing instead? Well, if you go back to Congress's basic powers in this area, they include the power to say uh, districts for the House need to be compact rather than non-compact. Uh, if you've been around the gerrymandering issue, you know what that signifies, which is no more catch-up splots. Uh, the, the, you know, it has to look more like uh, a contained area, squares or circles or whatever, rather than like a flying dragon. And uh, so it's simple. And the great thing about prescribing compactness is that it's already been done. For several decades, Congress did, in fact, prescribe compactness in House districts. No one challenged it because no one thought it was unconstitutional, because it wasn't unconstitutional. So you've got that. And you could refine that. You could, for example, add a thing saying that um, in uh, redistricting for the House, the states also have to uh, pay due heed to county lines. Uh, now, once you put in those two things, compactness and due heed for county lines, you have somewhat tied the hands of a lot of the worst gerrymander offenders. You eliminate nearly all of the bad gerrymanders currently in effect. Now, the other side will come back and say, well, but you still don't have a perfect system because even with their hands tied, people can get away with some helping their friends. And that's true. It's not a perfect reform. It would just get rid of like all the current bad gerrymanders. Uh, it wouldn't cure the patient of every possible sickness. But I think it's pretty great if you could pass, you know, simple language that would largely get rid of all of the most extreme examples of a really terrible anti-democratic practice. And that's what Congress could do simply with some uh, language on that. Now, if you switch back to the proposal they've got in there instead of requiring all 50 states to uh, devise independent citizen commissions, um, that's one of about seven provisions in the For the People Act that uh, I, I began listing. What, what, what are the courts going to strike down? And they're going to strike down that one uh, for a couple of reasons, but very significantly because uh, of some recent Supreme Court decisions. The Obamacare case was one in which they said Congress can't just commandeer. That was the uh, term of art. Congress can't just come in, uh, commandeer state governments, order them to create an agency here and pass a law there. Uh, state governments are not to be ordered around that way. They can be ordered to do some things, but generally not to create whole new agencies that they don't want to. So the Supreme Court, I think, would strike down what the bill is trying to do, and yet it could accomplish a great deal of good, and I think most of the good that there's a consensus on, um, so much more simply. You mentioned that this was an omnibus piece of legislation. One of the pieces that it contains is the Disclose Act, or large chunks of the Disclose Act, which has long sort of been the wish of uh, Charles Schumer in the Senate 
to much more stringently regulate the way uh, campaigns, outside groups, I'm putting that in scare quotes, uh, and others communicate with voters trying to move the needle one way or another. And those sections of the bill march right into a controversy where uh, there is no bipartisan consensus at all. And I think in this case, the Republicans are right. Uh, this endangers free speech uh, rights of the sort that the Supreme Court has recognized in past cases. And the the dangers here, uh, which have drawn comment from ACLU lawyers, among others, in past rounds, are that uh, you create a lot of legal jeopardy for groups that are not in the campaign business. They are in the issue business. But part of what they want to do on their issue is to, let's say, buy an advertisement saying that uh, one side or another, Speaker Pelosi or Mitch McConnell or someone, uh, is blocking progress on this, or, you know, please call her office. Uh, it's very understandable why an issue group would want to do that. It doesn't mean that they're trying to affect an election. And this would, particularly around the time of elections, it would shackle groups from some of their most effective techniques in advocating for changes in policy, advocating for you know, everything from uh, judicial confirmations to uh, uh, you know the foreign policy. Uh, these types of ads get the attention of Congress, and it's no wonder that some people in Congress wouldn't mind if there were fewer of them, if, if there were fewer ads saying, call Senator Schumer or whatever. But when you look at the Supreme Court's First Amendment jurisprudence, uh, the Supreme Court has acknowledged that if you run for office, you may have to um, accept a lower level of um, privacy or uh, accept more disclosure of things that they couldn't require you to disclose otherwise. Um, that may also happen if you are a group set up to campaign, but uh, extend that to groups whose primary purpose is not to campaign, but that just care about issues, and you've really potentially chilled a lot of speech. How does this uh, piece of legislation deal with so-called dark money? That is money spent in elections, but is not a campaign contribution. Well, it tries to do several things. And of course, we saw that going after the issue groups is one of them. It also goes after advertising uh, of other sorts. And part of the idea here, and it really is a carryover from uh, four or five years ago when there were fears that uh, the Russians tampering with uh, buying Facebook ads and creating uh, bogus events on Facebook and that sort of thing were manipulating public opinion. Uh, but the demand arose to regulate social media platforms in such a way that it would either deter this from happening or at least allow it to be traced afterwards. So that part of the bill uh, uh, requires that social media platforms and indeed large online platforms in general, which might not be social media as such, might be newspaper comment sections, have to keep track of who has been buying ads, keep a lot of information, and model in some ways on what in broadcasting uh, came to be known, I think, as log files, which the FCC required of TV and radio stations where anyone could come in and see certain records of who had done what on the air. Now, online platforms, of course, and online publishers are different from FCC-regulated broadcast stations. They have 
much more robust First Amendment rights, as the Supreme Court has recognized many times. And so when my own state of Maryland passed such a law a few years ago, it was challenged. It was challenged by leading newspapers, which recognized that they would be covered because they had so many online users that they counted as platforms for this purpose, and uh, went up to the Fourth Circuit, which unanimously struck it down as a classic violation of First Amendment rights. So I would have thought that with that hint in the air, uh, that the sponsors of the uh, For the People Act might have gone back and yanked out that section, or perhaps completely rewritten it, although I'm not sure they how, how they would have, to avoid uh, being found unconstitutional by any court following the same logic. So far as I can tell, they just left it in. They, you know, maybe they're hoping that the composition of the courts changes. Maybe they feel that they're too busy and, and something else is a more important priority for them. But there it is, right in the bill. Yeah. And as you pointed out, somewhat constitutional for a piece of legislation is not good enough. It's not good enough. And some of the funniest apologies for the For the People Act are um, people who say, well, most of it is constitutional. Well, of course, I never disputed that most of it would be found constitutional. But it's like really saying that in, in the old figure of speech known as the curate's egg, uh, part of which had spoiled, and the, the curate was carefully eating with a spoon around the unspoiled, said, well, parts of it, sir, are excellent. You know, this is some who should, you know, had every right to reject the whole thing if part of it, uh, certainly if you are a member of Congress and you've taken an oath to the Constitution, then passing something that has a bunch of constitutional violations in it, acceptable even if it's got some others that would be upheld by the courts. The constitutional violations don't cancel each other out? Uh, you can't say that you've got positive and negative iron filings or whatever, and uh, so that it all balances out somehow. Uh, you're not supposed to vote for unconstitutional measures. And, you know, if we wanted to get into the unconstitutional measures, some of them seem kind of technical to non-lawyers. Uh, some of them you can see a little further into the uh, constitutional structure on certain obscure issues. Uh, uh, for example, requiring presidential candidates to release their taxes uh, is the sort of thing that sounds like it might be constitutional until you look into the details of uh, uh, how the Supreme Court has interpreted qualification to run for, for president, which is that legislators can't add new qualifications to the ones the Constitution puts there. They can't say, oh, by the way, you have to be 40 instead of 30. They can't. And so they also can't, even if it's a good idea, even if I as a voter uh, would weigh that heavily in deciding whether to vote for someone, they can't make it a condition of running for office. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 